Peter Mansbridge here with the latest episode of the Bridge Daily as we kick off week 23 of the daily edition of the Bridge. Ever since COVID-19 struck, we've been going daily Monday to Friday with the exceptional holidays. I hope you had a good weekend. I had a great weekend. I'm back in Stratford now after a few days up in the Gatineau Hills, Quebec, north of Ottawa. Great time. Really enjoyed it. Had the chance to spend a lot of time in the water. Did a little bit of canoeing. There was a nice break. But back at it now on a number of fronts. And of course, always, whenever I can, do the podcast. Now, there was an interesting piece I was listening to, actually, as I was driving to Stratford today. On the radio about a new survey, a new poll done by the Angus Reid group, the Angus Reid organization. And it was trying to get at exactly how many Canadians are following the rules, you know, the basic rules, washing our hands, keeping distant, you know, six feet, a couple of meters from others, and wearing a mask. Those are kind of the main ones. So how many people are willingly trying hard to follow those rules. How many are trying hard but finding a lot of reasons why their work life uh, doesn't really allow them to follow them all, all the time? And how many are just totally not interested in following the rules at all? So the findings are interesting. And as a result... I phoned my friend, Shachi Curl, who's the executive director of the Angus Reid organization. And she's been on this podcast before. And you know, I used to uh, do a fair amount of work with Shachi when uh, I was at the CBC as well on the national. So I gave her a call and she was good enough to uh, spend a few minutes talking about what she sees as the most important stuff out of this survey, what it means and what it says about us. So why don't uh, why don't I let you listen to a part of that conversation? I don't know, eight or nine minutes. I think you'll find it very interesting. So here it is with Shachi. So Shachi, there's a lot of good stuff uh, in these results, but when you look at it, what jumps out to you? What's the main thing that you see in these results? Well, it is a good news, slightly disconcerting news story, and I would say more than slightly disconcerting, it's a lot to make us uneasy. Look, the the upshot here is that you've got about half the country that is reporting through its behaviors, its attitudes, and mindsets is all in on fighting the uh, spread of infection, uh, the the, the fighting uh, COVID-19. So these are folks who, uh, in terms of their hygiene, hand washing, mask wearing, keeping physical distance, not having a large social circle, mostly staying home. They are, they are a public health officer's dream. Uh, if, if they could kiss them, they would, but of course that's no longer allowed under COVID rules. Um, you have a significant number, about a third of the population, who are, are ticking a lot of those same boxes, but what sets them apart and what makes them uh, members of the inconsistent segment is that they also have larger social circles and they are traveling a little bit more 
And, you know, some of their behavior I don't think is necessarily driven by uh, not caring. I think they are falling a little bit in between uh, maybe some muddled messaging from public health officials and, and our politicians and others around, well, enjoy your summer, get out there, don't ignore the economy, uh, it's okay to travel, but be safe and use your judgment. And, of course, judgment and safety when left in personal hands, are actually very subjective things. Then, most concerningly, you've got about a fifth of the population, mostly young people, uh, who are really just done with the coronavirus, done with the pandemic, and no longer uh, motivated at all to do very much to stop the spread. They're not washing their hands. They're not keeping physical distance. More concerningly, they are hanging out with not just close friends and family in a tight social circle, they're hanging out with anyone. Often that's happening indoors, often with no mask wearing or physical distancing. Uh, and these folks are, are really not very engaged in terms of behaviors that would reduce as opposed to spread um, the, the rate of infection. So that is the group that I think public health officials need to be focused on the most. And we're seeing it. I'm talking to you from Vancouver. We're seeing it in British Columbia, where after really flattening the curve, numbers are ticking back up. And it is mostly driven by young people who are just, you know, either either mentally done with this or just not that engaged in terms of understanding and drawing a line between how their actions could have far-reaching reactions. You know, I, I saw the pictures from, uh, is it Rec Beach uh, in, in BC over the weekend, which uh, underlined that point you made about mainly young people and uh, seeming to ignore all the rules. Uh, but let me, let, let me look at the, the big picture of these numbers because I find them interesting in the sense that basically four out of five are trying hard or trying, at least trying, uh, to follow the guidelines and follow the, the, um, the restrictions that are placed on them. One out of five, totally ignoring. Now, the public health officials that I've heard over these past few months have said, if you can get a rate somewhere uh, around 80%, you're going to be in a very good shape in terms of flattening the curve and putting yourself and your community into a position of, uh, of dealing with this virus as best one can. Um, that seems to be the number that you're finding, this sort of 80% range, four out of five, either trying very hard or, or at least trying. At least trying, absolutely. Um, look, I, I am not uh, an epidemiologist. I'm not a public health specialist. If, if they're of the view that that's a good number to be at, I would say, okay, um, let's, let's celebrate that moment. Uh, I think going forward, though, does it need to stay at that level? Does it need to increase as we go into cold and flu season, as kids start to go back to school? Um, again, if it's, if it's 80% that's more or less doing the right thing, uh, and that doesn't change even as uh, increased exposure to each other will absolutely change as the weather cools as we've got kids in classrooms who are then going home to multi-generational households as they do in so many parts of this country, um, then, then good, uh, more power to us. So I think what we wanted to do was really understand and, and sketch out uh, who's, who's 
you know, in it to win it, so to speak, um, who is really in the category of the don't care bears and uh, and who maybe could be a little more adherent if perhaps they had a little bit clearer um, an understanding of uh, what best practices are. Because with this, Peter, as you and I know, it is such a new thing. So we don't have five years of study or 10 years or 50 years to tell us really what best practices are, really how this virus behaves, because we are, to an extent, dealing with it on the fly. Yeah, you're right about that. Um, last question, and it's about that, that one in five group. Uh, aside from age, what can you tell us about them? What, what do they share um, as a demographic in that, in that group in terms of whether by region or by background or by uh, political beliefs? What can you tell us? Yeah, there are some interesting correlations. They do tend to be concentrated more on the prairie provinces, so Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. Some of that, I, I would imagine, it speaks to the rural-urban divide. If you're somebody living north of North Battleford in, in Saskatchewan on a ranch or, or on a farm uh, off of a rural road and your nearest neighbors are three kilometers away, well, guess what? You're, you feel like you're doing your bit for social distancing. So some of this is really around the mindset of my life hasn't changed all that much. It's not in my community. I don't really need to be doing these things. Um, politically, I wouldn't say that politics is necessarily driving behavior on this because one thing that's been you know, quite heartening is across the political divide, we've seen our leaders pretty consistent in what they're saying, our politicians pretty consistent in what they're saying. But you can also find uh, in, in what is the heartland of conservative uh, support uh, in, in the country, not to say that people don't vote for the conservatives in other parts of the country, but that really is the heartland, um, a, a more libertarian streak. You will have some folks saying, look, uh, a mask is an imposition on me. I know better uh, what's, what's best for health and what's best for my family and my community. Uh, than, than anything a scientist in the city 500 kilometers away from me might say to me. So I, I think those things do combine. Interestingly, I think there's also something to be said for people's emotional mindsets around this. Something else that brings those cynical spreaders together. They are in general angrier at what's been going on in the last few months. So Rather than, um, you know, some people have responded saying, well, I'm fatigued, I'm worn out, I'm anxious. Some are expressing gratitude. We see the cynical spreaders more likely to be expressing anger and, uh, and really an ennui or, or a level of, of frustration that others, I think, are not. So there is that level of chafing. And again, if you're a 20-something or a, or a teenager, you haven't been able to see your friends, grabs and canceled, you can't do anything uh, now you, maybe you've graduated into a really uncertain job situation. Yeah, you're, you're angry, you're chafing, and, and really I think these folks are expressing a level of doneness with it all. But, of course, they don't have that luxury because this is going to go on for a while. Yeah. Uh, last quick one, and it's the same kind of question I always ask, whether it's you or Bruce Anderson or David Hurley, uh, and that is uh, something about uh, the survey itself how many people uh, were contacted and when so we 
spoke uh, to Canadians over the age of 18 in the last week. And I'm just going to very quickly pull up the survey sample size. It would have been more than 1,500, Peter, but let's let's. So that's a big that's a big survey then more than it is a big survey. It's a national sample. People across the country, every every part of the country, um, uh, balanced on age and and gender and regional demographics from from every part of the country. And we talked to folks in uh, English and French, and uh, and those are the results. So something around fifteen hundred would be a margin of error of what two and a half percentage points either Some, way. Yeah, something like that exactly. All right. Listen, Shachi, thanks so much for this. It's always great to talk to you, and I appreciate this one today. Thanks for the time, Peter. So, there you heard it. Shachi Curl from the uh, Angus Reed organization. She's in Vancouver, as she said. And um, what do you think of those numbers? I, I thought they were pretty interesting, and I think they give us a sense of kind of where we are as Canadians, how we're reacting to dealing with this deadly virus. Um, speaking of numbers, you know, briefly, I, you know, I've come around, I've, I think I've, you know, I've mentioned the positivity rate before, but it's starting to be the number that I find the most telling and the most interesting in terms of where things stand. So first of all, what, you know, if you don't know already, and I'm sure most of you do, because the people who listen to this podcast are uh, talking. There we go. Get rid of that. Um, who actually uh, understands exactly what the positivity rate means? Well, it's pretty simple, really. Everyday tests are done, and the number of tests that are done looking for COVID-19 in, in patients, if they turn out positive... The positivity rate is based on the number that are found positive over the number who were actually tested. Now, we've heard some big numbers in some of the testing surveys that have been done, especially in the southern states in these last, the last month or six weeks. Numbers that ran as high as 25, 30% positivity rates. Generally, it's accepted that if you are under 5%, your community or your state or your province or your country is in pretty good shape if you're under 5%. Well, you know, the Floridas and Californias and Arizonas and uh, Texas, uh, they have not been, and neither have a lot of other. Georgia, I think, is the other one. I mean, there's some really huge positivity rate numbers. Now, Canada has been dealing with some spikes in the last couple of days, the last, you know, 10 days or so in British Columbia, in Alberta, uh, some in Saskatchewan, and in Manitoba. But ask and look for what the positivity rates are. They tell a much bigger story in terms of how you are doing. Let me use Ontario as an example. Ontario has gone through... Most of the last 10 days, I think with only one or maybe two exceptions, they've been under 100 cases of positive per day. Out of testing that's been anywhere from 25 to 30,000 people, 
It's just Ontario. The positivity rate today was 0.31%. 0.31. Not 31. Not 3.1. But 0.31. So less than half of 1% of the number who have been tested are turned, turned out positive with t- in today's numbers. So that is an extremely low positivity rate, which isn't much comfort for those who turn positive, but it is for the community at large. Because once again, something under 5% is good, according to public health officials. Over 5%, then you're definitely dealing, say the public health officials, with some form of community spread, that the virus is spreading in your community, sort of out of check. Well, at 0.31, they can narrow it down very closely to exactly how you ended up getting the virus. Now, the other positivity rates across Canada, I don't believe any of them are anywhere near 5%. I mean, overall, the last day that I saw the total number that turned positive across the country was under 500. Under 500 for the whole country. So positivity rates are all way down. Right now, some of the best positivity rates are in Ontario and Quebec, the two most populous provinces and the two provinces that have had the most difficulty with this virus. If you consider fatalities as the most difficult area of it. Anyway, when you're hearing the numbers churned out or you're reading the stories, look for the positivity rate. It's a, it's a pretty good reflection of how your area is doing. And you can, you can get it for your specific community, for your health region, for your province, and obviously for the country. So keep that in mind if you get a chance. All right, I got a couple of other things I wanted to talk about. Um, we've talked a lot about what happens if and when a vaccine comes along. Nobody's saying this is happening anytime soon, except Donald Trump. But let's say... Let's say it happens early next year. Then the next question becomes, who gets it? Assuming you have enough produced, who gets it? How should the priority list be run? And generally accepted in that discussion, that argument, that debate, is that it should go first to frontline healthcare workers doctors and nurses and those working in the hospital wards where COVID-19 patients are being treated. And then backing off a little bit, police officers, firefighters, paramedics, that that grouping should be first up. Second up, the generally accepted area has been, okay, next up, Older people, the elderly, 
the most vulnerable. Certainly we're the most vulnerable when this pandemic first struck. You remember the horror stories in the in the long-term residence homes. Well, as an interesting argument put forward in an opinion piece by a woman by the name of Faye Flam on Bloomberg, she argues that once a COVID-19 vaccine is developed, it should be given first to healthy young people to ensure the reduction in transmission in those who are most likely to transmit the disease, younger adults. Vaccinating the young people could be the fastest way to herd immunity and could be a strategic use of limited vaccine amounts, especially in the beginning of the rollout. Now, that's the first time I've seen that argument put forward. That's an interesting discussion. And we should have that. So if you have thoughts on that, let me know. We have the luxury of time waiting for this vaccine to think about things like this. Where should they first use the vaccine? Well, if you have thoughts on it, the Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. You can always send them along. And I'll include them on the uh, Friday weekend special. Now, here's another one. I had a I had a couple of discussions on the weekend about students. And this time it was not about school in, you know, from K to 12. It was about university students. And obviously the, you know, students who are going for their first year of university, they've waited their life, especially the last couple of years for this moment, this honor of being accepted into a great university. The excitement that surrounded that, moving away from home, their first time, going into residence, taking classes at a university. It is one of the great steps in life, that first year in university or college. Well, for so many this year, it's not going to be that exciting because they're going to be absolutely kept away from the classroom for many. And the class is going to be online. You don't even have to leave your home. I mean, a lot of kids leave home, right, to travel to a university not in their town. And they end up in residence. That's part of the excitement, part of growing up part of becoming, moving towards adulthood. Well, for so many this year, that's unlikely to happen. They could go to residence and sit in their room in residence, taking classes online. Well, how fun is that? Or they could stay at home and take classes online. How fun is that? So that's an issue for a lot of kids. So Willie, my son, who's in his final year at U of T this year, he was with me on this little jaunt up to the Gatineau this 
past four or five days, and we were talking about it in the car. And he said he'd been together with three or four of his old high school buddies here in Stratford, I think it was two weekends ago. Socially distant, very careful. But they got around to talking about that and wondering aloud what they would have done if it had been their final year of high school and this had happened and what would they have done about going to the university or college when they were being told it's going to be online. And they said, I think more than half of them, most of them, determined that, you know what, we'll wait a year. We'll work for a year or we'll do something for a year, but, or we'll take, you know, we'll take a gap year or we'll, we'll go back and what do they call it when you sort of do a go around, take grade 12 again. There's a term for that, which I've forgotten <laughs> because I never got there <laughs> myself. Anyway, there's a piece this week, let me find it here, in the last couple of days, um, about this dilemma for some kids. Um, have I lost it here? I don't think so. Got it here somewhere. Um, Basically, the argument is, and I've, I've lost track of where I saw that, um, but the argument in it, I remember it well, was that's not going to be a good place to be because giving up that year of progress of university, whether it's online or not, is going to cost you in the long run. It's going to cost you in the job market. When jobs start coming back, it's going to cost you in lifetime salary. So it's something you should be extremely careful about making a decision on. That if you have the chance to go to university this year or college, even if it's an online class, you should do it. All right? That's that point. Now, here's the last thing I wanted to talk about. I found this really interesting. It's from the Atlantic magazine, Atlantic.com. Just as the Great Depression permanently altered many people's behavior, Peace in the Atlantic suggests that a meaningful percentage of people will probably continue aspects of their new quarantine-induced habits long into the future. We've talked about this many times over the last four or five months. How would we change and would we change permanently? Well, this article is suggesting, in fact, it's going to change permanently for some people. Even after the threat of the coronavirus passes, some examples of new behaviors include washing hands more often. I can believe that. I'm so used to it now, I don't even think about it anymore. Wearing masks when one is feeling unwell. 
I'm not sure about that. Whether that will be something that passes on into the future. Perhaps. If you're feeling poorly, if you've got a cough or you're sneezing, or you just feel under the weather, you don't want to pass it on, will you grab a mask two, three, five years from now when COVID-19 is just a bad memory, we hope. Spending less or expensive, no, spending less on expensive hair and skincare products. Well, there are a couple of ways to spend less on expensive hair products. I learned one of these many years ago. But I, you know, I wonder. I mean, look at what you've used up until five months ago in your whatever area of your house and your bathroom, behind the mirror where you store your stuff. How much of that stuff do you still use? Or have you learned to live without because of the way we live now? And the final one is feeling more okay about staying home as opposed to feeling pressured to go out. What do you think of that? I think those are all very possible. I think it's possible that uh, the mask one is the one I'm not sure of. I'm not sure that there are going to be a lot of people who are going to say, I'm going to keep wearing masks. Maybe. I, you know, every once in a while I think about what is going to happen that first time I go to a Leafs game or a Raptors game. Will I be wearing a mask when they open it back up to fans and I'm in an arena with 20,000 other people screaming and yelling? And now that we know what comes out of your mouth when you scream and yell that we never realized was happening before, Maybe uh, maybe masks will be with us for a while. I don't know. Good discussion. All righty. There you go. Week 23 underway for the Bridge Daily. Hope you enjoyed it. I'm Peter Mansbridge. This has been the Bridge Daily. Joe, uh, I wanted to tell you Wednesday will be the race next door this week. Wednesday. It'll give you a couple of days to watch some of the convention stuff. It's kind of the, you know, the Monday, Tuesday of convention week in the United States for the Democrats is, you know, there's some pretty good speakers, but it's, it's not the big ticket stuff. Wednesday night, Thursday night are the big nights. So the Wednesday podcast, the race ahead, will deal with conventions, and the impact they can have, especially this year with a convention unlike anything we've witnessed before. All right? So that's Wednesday night for the race next door. But we'll be back here, as we like to say, in 24 hours. (laughs) 